Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words. So listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. This is A Million Other Choices, and I am your host, Kim. friends. And you know why I know that? Because you have the same twisted sense of true crime interest that I do. But for some reason, and I know it's not out of enjoyment, you seem to do the same thing that I do with podcasts. Search for the ones about children. I don't know what this is all about, and I, like I said, I know that it's not because we enjoy listening to the murder of children, but I think there is just something so unfathomable about hurting an innocent and defenseless and trusting child that we just can't turn away from. It's like why I watch Hoarders. What's even more interesting is that the episodes that don't get quite as many downloads are when the victim is a man. So I'm not sure what exactly is wrong with us. All I know is what's wrong with me is what's wrong with you, and so therefore we are friends and we get each other. On that note, this is the serious and most egregious murder of Pucky Gustafson. Gustafson, who everyone called Punky because of her blonde locks that tended to stick out in spikes on her adorable little head, was born on January 2, 1986 in Edmonton, Alberta, to her mom Karen Vallette and dad Ray Gustafson. The couple of pictures of Punky that were released to the media show a little girl in her kindergarten graduation cap and gown, and she's looking up at the camera with her smirky smile that tells you she was just the absolute light of her parents' eyes. You could just tell that little Punky was just all of that and more. And just looking at her picture, I want to reach into the picture and pluck her out and say, not this child, please, not this child. Punky and her parents live near 34th Street and 113th Avenue in a townhouse with a small front yard in an area known as Rundle Heights, an established neighborhood with with a series of bungalows, split levels mixed in with townhomes and duplexes, just sort of your average middle-class Canadian neighborhood. Around 9.30 in the morning on September 6, 1992, Punky, her brother Barry, and her friend Lindsay Knott were in the front yard playing hide-and-seek. Ray, Punky and Barry's dad, had been tasked with watching them, which he's doing from the front doorway, and he's in sock feet, so he isn't sitting right outside, but watching from either the front doorway or the kitchen window. 
He turns around and is distracted for maybe two and a half minutes. And this is something that will later lead him to suffering a nervous breakdown and the falling apart of the Gustafson's marriage. Many years later, telling a jury, blame and guilt got between Karen and I and destroyed the trust we had in each other and led to the breakup of our family. Completely by chance, at the exact moment he turned his back, a blue van pulled next to the fence. A man that Lindsay will later describe as looking like the boogeyman hops out of the driver's side and rushes to the fence. It's one of those short fences that you see in front yards, not the tall ones in the back, and grabs Punky, pulling her over the fence before either Lindsay or Barry could even scream, and shoved her in the van before taking off. The children's screams made Ray turn around and run outside in his sock feet, frantically looking up and down the street, distraught and unable to believe what has just happened. Only a little over three months before, three-year-old Mandy Tremblay had been playing at the park, which was directly next to the apartment building she shared with her aunt and mum. At dinner time, she realized she had left her shoes at the park, so she went to get them. After entering the park, she was grabbed by a man. Her mum couldn't find her and spent a frantic two hours searching for her before calling the police. She had been found the next day after a fearful and traumatic night of being sexually assaulted and injured in a field nine full miles away from her home. Besides the sexual assault injuring her, she was also thrown from the vehicle she had been abducted in without the vehicle even stopping first. Thankfully, the little peanut survived, but wasn't able to give the police anything to really go on. I mean, she was three and completely traumatized, and her case has gone cold before it can even warm up. So the search for Punky was given top priority by Edmonton police, and a massive citywide search was underway minutes after Ray's frantic call to 911. Two days later, little Corrine, a.k.a. Punky's body, was found lying face down between two semi-trailers in an industrial truck yard about nine kilometers from her home. She had been fully clothed, but her white running shoes were missing. They have never been found. In her pants pocket was the folded $2 bill given to her by her mum for her bingo winnings the night before. They had been planning to go shopping the day after she disappeared to spend it. Police were able to identify and take impressions of footprints, which appeared to have been from cleated shoes, like baseball shoes, about size 5.5 to 7, somewhere in there. And these were specific cleat designs made in Canada, a brand called Meter. And the tire impressions from Goodyear Invicta GL tires, which would have fit a mid-sized North American front-wheel drive vehicle. The tires were newer on the back, about 20% wear, but bald on the front tires. They were also able to determine that Punky had been placed there after being killed in another location. It was all smelling very similar to Mandy's story, only without an ending where Punky survives. The medical examiner's report had even more heartbreaking news for the family. She had been sexually assaulted, and the injuries sustained from that were, were a contributing factor to her death. The actual cause of death for Punky was asphyxiation from smothering. And when I say a contributing factor, what they mean is that had she not been smothered, she likely would have bled to death from the injuries sustained to her genital area. I mean, for crying out loud, is there no limit to how low a person can go? The medical examiner later testified, this is the worst example of this that I have seen. 
His report also showed that Punky had been undressed and then redressed. Both her legs were through the same leg hole in her underwear. Her pants were on backward and her arms were left out of her jacket armholes. Edmonton police launched one of the largest and longest investigations in the city's history. The murder of Punky was featured twice on Unsolved Mysteries, but no arrest was made. One of the earliest suspects was Ron Davies, the fiancé of Karen's older sister, Sharon. Apparently, Punky's body was found in the vicinity of his semi-trailer on the lot, but he was exonerated by DNA in in the year 2000. A year after Punky's death in 1993, tip number 4,411 of a total of almost 5,100 came in about a sex offender named Clifford Slay, who had a thing for wearing baseball cleats, even though he never played baseball. He had a couple of sexual assault charges of girls under the age of 16, but one was his niece and the other his stepdaughter, so he didn't really fit the profile of a loner that did stranger abductions. He also had an alibi. Then on August 17, 1994, around 7 p.m., eight-year-old Mindy Tran had been riding her bike outside her home in Kelowna, B.C. when she disappeared. She was found about two months later in a shallow grave in Mission Creek Park. A man named Shannon Murren lived down the street from her, and an investigation found that three hairs in her underwear matched with Shannon's DNA. They believed that he had killed Mindy and stuffed her body into a suitcase, which he then carried to the wooded park. Mindy had been strangled with her own shorts and sexually assaulted. He went on trial in January 2000, but was acquitted. DNA evidence back then was still considered too technical and and sounded like voodoo to a lot of juries back then, and was used more in the early days as a way of eliminating someone more than narrowing it down to a specific person. But even though he was acquitted of Mindy's murder, he was a likely suspect in Punky's. At the time of Punky's murder, he had been living in Edmonton in a halfway house after being released on parole for armed robbery and assault charges. Billboards of Punky asking for information and tips continued to go up around Edmonton for the next 10 years. Nearly 5,500 tips came in and potential suspects were identified, but still no arrests were made. But investigators refused to give up on finding Punky's murderer and rapist, including detectives Terry Aim, who spent a large portion of his career as the lead detective in her case. I will be right back after these brief messages. When DNA started to become more of a thing, they had a tiny speck of sperm that they had been able to find on Punky's underwear sent to the lab to build a profile off of it. It didn't match the DNA of Shannon Murin nor Ray Davis, but what Canada was starting to do back in June 2000 was slowly start entering DNA profiles of convicted violent offenders into a national database but it wasn't retroactive. So if you were convicted post-June 2000, your DNA was entered, but not for convictions before that. But there were exceptions made. In February 2002, DNA from serial rapist Larry Takanhashi was ordered to be entered into the bank. And in November 2002, Justice Alan Lefevre 
ordered a DNA sample to be taken from a 40-year-old inmate at the Bowdoin Institute serving time for a couple of sexual assaults and entered into the databank, and wouldn't you know it, it came back as belonging to the sperm sample found in Punky's underwear with an accuracy of 1 in 25 trillion. Now, who was the sexual offender? None other than Clifford Slay, the guy in 1993 they suspected because he liked baseball cleats. At a press conference in March 2003 after his arrest, Karen Vallette spoke through tears. I had hope. Every day I'd say, this will be the day that the phone will ring and the police will say that they caught the guy. And it happened. I just cried. I'm happy it's over with. They had determined the culprit's DNA profile. At the time, they said they didn't know his identity. Detective Terry Ames said at that conference, who had retired by 2003, this is by far the best day I have had in over a decade. It's overwhelming when all that information comes through and you have to sift through it. We've always felt that there was someone out there who knew something. Clifford pled guilty to kidnapping and manslaughter, but not guilty to aggravated sexual assault, which is a sexual assault where, where the wounding and maiming endangers the victim's life. But the prosecutor refused to accept the plea to manslaughter down from first-degree murder. So because the plea wasn't accepted, a trial of sorts was still held. Not if he did it or not, but whether or not it was first-degree, second-degree, both which come with the necessity of proving intent or manslaughter. He has admitted he caused Corrine Gustafson's death, and he did so unlawfully. Now it is up to the Crown to prove that Slay had the state of mind to commit murder and that he knew he was committing an offense that he put her in grave danger. One juror broke down into tears when shown a book of graphic photographs that included pictures of her little body after her death. The jury was also shown a five-hour interrogation video in which Clifford Slay said he never meant to kill Punky and that she was still alive when he left her, still blindfolded, sitting on the fender of the trailer. But he wanted to confess to the rape because I think I owe that to Punky's family. Then the prosecutor read from the agreed statements of facts, which was horrific for the family to have to hear about the events leading up to, during, and after Punky's abduction. Clifford was actually living in Lodgepole, Alberta, just west of Red Deer, but had come to Edmonton with his common-law wife, Gail Smith, and her two children so that her daughter could visit their dad, who was in from Manitoba. And they were all staying with relatives of Gail's close to the home of Punky and her family. On the morning of September 6, 1992, he took one of his relatives' cars, without asking, of course. He was in a bit of a rage that morning because he actually wanted to rape one of his stepdaughters, but they had gone off somewhere with their mom. So at 10 a.m., he spotted Punky and her friend Lindsay Knott playing in the front yard and grabbed Corrine only because she was the one standing closest to the fence at that moment. He then took her to an undisclosed place where he brutally raped her and then left her in the truck, truck yard discarded on the ground. He claims she was still alive when he left her there, but the evidence shows she had been smothered and deceased when, the pla when placed there. The jury only took 11 hours to come to the conclusion that he did in fact intend on killing her and that he was convicted of murder and kidnapping. Karen leaned over to the prosecutor, Jason Track, and whispered, good job, when they gave their verdict. She told reporters outside the courtroom that she was going to go to Punky's grave and tell her that we caught him 
and she can rest in peace now. Since retired Edmonton homicide detective Terry Elm, who was the main investigator on the case for nearly a decade, said, This is the last case I have outstanding, and there isn't a day that goes by that I haven't thought about it. Jason Track told reporters that it was very unfortunate that three of Clifford's friends had given him false alibis back in 1992, which pulled investigators away from looking into him further and delayed justice. Clifford had already spent 23 of his 42 years on this planet in prison for violent sexual assault charges against children that he knew and was supposed to have taken care of and protected. As usual, the victim impact statements were heart-wrenching and stab at your gut painful to listen to. Karen, Punky's mom, said, I never got to say goodbye to her or say I love you, my little girl. We think about her every day. What would she be like today? She asked Justice Terrace Claxon if she could have the $2 bill that she had given her the day before she died, and the crumpled and weathered bill was returned to her, which she clutched in her hand tearfully. Ray Gustafson talked about the guilt and anguish that he's had to live with for 13 years and how the death of Punky he was charged with watching and protecting had led him to having a nervous breakdown and led to the breakdown of his marriage. When given his chance to speak, Clifford said, I just want to apologize to the family and say I'm sorry. Punky's cousin Amanda Davis shouted from the gallery, Don't cry for us. We don't need your remorse, buddy. But Clifford continued, I'm sorry for the pain that I brought the family. I accept full responsibility for my actions. And Amanda again shouted, no, you didn't. Justice Claxton ordered her to be quiet, but we still like Amanda. And with that, he was sentenced to 25 years in jail with no chance of parole until 2028. However, he was able to apply for early parole in 2018 due to some faint hope clause bullshit. Outside of the courtroom, Karen said, he's not sorry. If he was sorry, he would have come forward a long time ago, but he's not sorry. Ray said he should be named a dangerous offender, which would mean he he could be kept in jail indefinitely. And about his apology said, I don't think it was coming from his heart. It was just coming from his mouth. The National DNA Data Bank, or the NDDP in Ottawa, was created in June 2000 to assist law enforcement agencies with solving crimes by identifying or eliminating suspects and determining whether a serial offender is involved. Under the DNA Identification Act, all of those convicted of serious crimes, such as murder and sexual assault, must give a sample of their DNA to the NDDP. Some offenders convicted prior to June 30, 2000, such as dangerous offenders and murderers who killed at least two different times, must also submit a sample. For those convicted of less serious offenses, such as assault, it's up to the Crown to make the request and then ordered at the judge's discretion. In March 2023, the, the NDDP matched a total of 85,444 DNA samples since June of 2000. 77,000 of them were crime scene to offender hits. Uh, 8,500 of them were crime scene to crime scene. 67 human remains have been identified and of the hits made just over 5,000 were for murders and almost 8,000 for rapes. Go team Canada. And that was the horrible murder of Corrine Gustafson.
Mandy Tremblay's abduction on May 26, 1992 has not been solved. Over 300 tips have been received. There is a $40,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for her kidnapping and rape. Uh, call the Edmonton Police or Crime Stoppers if you have any information on that. The murder of Mindy Tran is still technically unsolved, but Shannon Murin is considered to be the lead suspect despite his acquittal. Uh, one of the juries that acquitted him, Catherine McDonald, moved to Newfoundland with him after they fell in love during the trial. In 2002, he talked about writing a book about his trial and said, Sue me, it'll be like getting a public inquiry and going to court. That's what I'd like to do. See? There'll probably be a lot of people going to sue me after my book comes out and I couldn't care less. An internal investigation was done into his prosecution, but it determined that the police did make mistakes, uh, but that those mistakes actually hurt the prosecution's case and didn't lead to any false allegations. I don't want to talk much about Mindy's case because I have a feeling that I'm going to be doing an episode dedicated to her murder in the future. I am going to be back again next week with another case. And just to give you a break, it's not a case involving a child. Well, a teenager, but still not a child. However, it is known as the worst murder case in the world. Uh, so I guess it's just another week of us all being traumatized together. As always, I want to thank you for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.